episode three. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us for a, a change to our scheduled programming, where today we're going to be talking to someone who isn't a runner. Well, well, he is, but he's not a runner by heart. And I know you're probably saying, I thought you said the show was called The Big Run. Well, well, it is. And just, just chill, yeah, because he may not be a runner, but he is a dab hand at triathlon and endurance cycling sportives. And there is some amazing insight to be had and some hilarious stories to be told through his experiences. He's also a phenomenally talented actor with a career spanning TV, film and theatre. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Carl Collins. Thank you so much for coming on, Carl. Um, And, you know, both being actors, I would like to begin at the beginning. And I'd love to go back to you, growing up, young lad, Nottingham in Clifton. Wow. Because this is the big run and we're talking about sports and stuff like that. I wanted to know what, what your relationship was to sports when you were a young lad. Were you, I know you're a keen cyclist now, but what, what, was, what was your first introduction to sports when you were younger? What was the thing that you used to do or did you um, do anything? Well, well listen, my, my family home and the home that my mum still lives in, mm. Clifton is a huge council estate on the outskirts of Nottingham. Everyone, a garden back and front, you know, kind of real 60s project. Mm. My mum's house, the family home I grew up in, the south-facing garden that literally was the, the back fence was to the schoolyard, the primary school that I went to, that we all really? went to. And our house was two doors, literally two houses away from the school gates. So we had the whole schoolyard and the playing fields um, to ramp around on. And sometimes even on the school roof as we got older. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the funniest thing was the other side of the school fields, playing fields, was the police station. Clifton Police Station was really? directly opposite. But, um, but, but, you know, that's, that's, that's another story. But um, so <laughs> from, as, from, as, from as early as I can remember, we were on the school grounds. And that was when you could go on school grounds. It wasn't like, you know, you, out, of my, um, out of my back garden, you see the playground. And that's where I learned to ride my first bike. Mm. We used to play football. All my mates lived on my same street. We used to play football over there. We'd play World Cup. And I was always either Socrates or Zico (laughs) um, um, or Pele. I was always a Brazilian footballer. And so we all played on there. And there was no sport. Hand on heart, there was no sport that I did not play. Mm. So at school, I was in the football team. We did athletics. I ran. I jumped. And it's kind of like, you know, idyllic childhood. The sun always shone. And we always went ramping down the woods and in the river and all the rest of it. But at some point, I don't know at what age, but I really got into playing tennis. And it was oh, quite really? young because I, I, used to, I used to just, I asked for a tennis racket. And I think as kids, we always had tennis. We had some sort of tennis racket, right? Be- between you, you know, I'm not saying we were, like, we, were, we were going to the tennis courts. We were literally just over the school, schoolyard. And I was hitting the ball against the wall literally just hitting it against the wall and I really loved it and it was kind of quite solitary but I loved it I loved that battle and I hand on heart I used to imagine Beyond Borg was driving by Clifton <laughs> my primary school and he would see me hitting this ball against the wall and go that boy is the next champion. I'm going to take him under my wing. I'm going to, I swear to God, that is no lie. I was, I was, a, Borg, I was a Borg fan, not a McEnroe fan. I was right. a Borg fan. D-Lee, um, Swede. You know, I was just like, okay, he's Swedish. Is he Swedish? 
whatever. But he was like a steely Scandinavian. I just loved that. And so he was my man. So he was, I, your, he was your kind of sporting hero then growing up then? He was, he, was, he was a sporting hero. And then when I went to senior school and we did get the chance to play tennis, I was in the tennis team, the tennis club. I loved it. And I, and I loved team sports. But there was something about that individual thing where you were the only one in control. If mm. you did badly, it was because you were shit. <laughs> and I love playing but at the same time I um we didn't have money for lessons and stuff like that mm. and so I just played in the, at the school and luckily um my geography teacher she was into and I don't know and I know I know that I had a crush on her mm. I know that I had a crush on her and she used to play tennis with me at, at term lunchtime and I'm sure she used to think oh god this kid wants me to play tennis and so she would play tennis with me at lunchtime and I would be out playing tennis at lunchtime with Miss Turner um, hi, Gillian Turner. Yes, you know, you know, I liked you. Um, but um, <laughs> this 13-year-old boy, it's so funny, isn't it? Because you think now, she was probably maybe 23, 24. She, she enjoyed playing tennis. I was really good at playing tennis, played tennis. And then when I went to my next senior school, because for various reasons, my senior school closed, the, the house that I was in, principal of the house, mm. was um, a keen tennis um, tutor. So oh, right. Then, Part of the tennis team we went on these huge um tennis excursions to these posh schools but it never got to a point where i was playing you know we had money for me to go and actually be trained properly trained mm. so i always loved tennis along with that I'm a bit long-winded but along with that i was always in all the other teams at school so i was like in the football team i was in the athletics middle distance and cross country was my thing actually so 800 meters was my was my best that was right. what i really excelled at and then anything over that, I would do that and would be right in the top of the rankings for our school and our mm. area. And in fact, uh, a mate of mine that I've only just got back in touch with, we were basically the two best at long distance. And um, I was telling someone earlier, actually, we, we, we loved it that much. And we were literally always, always the first two. But we never wanted to beat each other at the end. So we used to come in holding. Really? Oh, I love that. I love it's like the Brownlee brothers or, or that. I love that. Just that's, that's great. So what you would be yeah. let sort of want to be in uh, ahead of the other or, or or whatever, and you would you sort of like whisp you know shout up ahead yeah. like we're getting close to the finish. Let's just pull back and cross holding hands. No, no, we 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 would we were we were always we were always pushing each other. So it was not like oh he was a hundred yards ahead or I was a hundred yards ahead. Mm. We just had the same kind of, and I was never like slowing to let him keep with me or whatever we just had this great rivalry where we pushed each other and there was mm. never and maybe and maybe maybe we could have attempted that sprint finish away from each other but we always did have a big sprint at the end but we were just like let's just go in together and we did that we did that so it was like yeah it's kind of bizarre isn't it it's bizarre, i love that but, though i love that sort yeah. of like camaraderie like to be pushing and challenging each other but the sort of the sportsmanship of ultimately at the end let's 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 finish this together i think that's it's, it's lovely man like you know the first the first london marathon the the men's uh, race finished with the two two league guys they crossed the line together you know the brownie uh, brothers yeah. always yeah, crossed the line well they've crossed their line together several times i i just think that's it's just something quite quite beautiful about that. I love. I just love the idea of you two just crossing the line succinctly. It's, <laughs> it's brilliant. No, but I was going to say that sport is so um, supremely competitive and it's wonderful. Everyone loves the idea that there's still some sense of camaraderie mm. or humanity within that 
that actually it's not at all costs. You know, if you think of like classics like the Brownlee brothers where his brother was like dying on the line. You remember that? Oh, that yeah, coming in the end of the time. Yeah. And like, it's like another one the other day where, and I can't remember what it was. It must've been on some YouTube hole. And it was, I think it was, it was either, I think it was the end of a, you know, when you get down that uh, YouTube oh, yeah. hole and uh, it was the end of some triathlon uh, um, and the guy had run the wrong way. And the guy who was behind him, you've seen, you must've seen that one. Yeah. Yeah. He sort of pulled like aside. He, he, he literally pulled aside and let him win because he knew mm. he wasn't going to finish him the line. You just think, Oh my God. And forever he will be, Oh, second place. And the other guy will be first, but what will people remember? Oh, they'll remember that he was the guy that stepped aside. So I, I always loved that. I've always loved that in sport. I love that though. It is. And I always feel like, sport is a real reflection of humanity in that in that respect that you do see all aspects of it and you do see ruthless competition and competitiveness and 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 winning at all costs but you also see you know real acts of generosity and sportsmanship and and humanity and that's that's why i find it so so fascinating so so you're so you're playing a lot of sports you're getting Mm -hmm. quite into your tennis your middle distance but sort of alongside that you're I presume your acting bug is is starting to to generate at the same time because you were you were a member of the the now infamous uh, Central Junior Television Workshop as well. So what what age did you join? Did you join that? Because well, for people listening in, just to sort of explain the, it was uh, based it was based in Nottingham, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, well, um, it was set up in '83, and I was one of the very first members. I was the mm. uh, inaugural year member of the inaugural year. At that point, I'd been doing school plays and all that sort of stuff. I was kind, of, you know, I was kind of, I wouldn't say showy offy, but I, you know, I'd, I'd always took part in plays and any any chance to express myself in that way. So, and I can't remember. My dad came home form. Oh, there was a friend at I know another friend at school had given me this heads up about this drama group that was starting. And the, the, the thing about the thing about the Central Junior Television Workshop was that you didn't have to pay to go. Right. It was a drama club that you had to audition to go to join. And the reason you had to audition was because it was like they didn't care whether you had money, all they cared about was whether you had talent or you had an interest. Mm. And for me, in a very naive way, watching TV, I'd never really had a belief that acting was a career. You just watch TV. And somewhere in my in my mind, I thought that if you're on TV as a kid, you must be, I know it sounds really stupid, but I just thought, oh, you must be a rich kid or you must be a posh kid. Mm. I mean, I never thought of it any more, any more detail than that. I just thought that was not in my scope, in my field. That was not for me. I didn't even watch kids on TV think, I wish that was me. It just wasn't, it just wasn't, you know, I just, I just enjoyed drama. Anyway, so I, I auditioned for the junior television workshop and um, I got in. And even when I got in, I wasn't even sure what I was go- going to do. Mm. So Central, Gel- Central Television basically set up this drama club, which was run by a woman called Sue Knott, who'd obviously done lots of um, community theatre, and she was a bit of a hippie and was into young people's drama and stuff. So she ran this group. We did twice a week, a couple of hours each evening. And um, Central Gel- Television set it up to, as, as, a, as I suppose, um, a way to give young people an outlet Mm. but listen it wasn't completely altruistic then what they did was they would then when they were casting for tv shows for central tv they would come to the workshop and they would 
cast amongst the workshop. Not mm. that they weren't bound to cast amongst the workshop, but they, they would come and audition people at the workshop, or they'd sit in on sitting on a drama class, and then at the end they go, "Oh, we like that guy, we like that kid, blah blah." And so that's how I got my first ever TV job at fourteen on my fourteenth birthday, actually. Really? Um, what yeah. was your first gig at fourteen? At fourteen, there was a, a drama series, half-hour drama series on all the regional stations. So you had like, you had LWT, you had mm -hmm. Central Television, you had Yorkshire TV, you had Time Tees. So they were all individual. And each week it was a, a drama. So it was like, the, it was almost like a play for today, the old school right. play for today. And each local TV, um, regional TV station had a drama. The one that Central had commissioned that, that year was called, was called Because I Say So. Mm -hmm. And the series was called Drama Armour. And it was a series that each week was by a different, as I say, different regional TV station. And our, the one that I was in that week was called Because I Say So. And it was set in a classroom. There was four young lads who were in a, a gang at school and they'd been accused of shooting another pupil in the eye with a pellet gun. And they right. were always getting in hard hitting stuff. Hard hitting stuff. And it, and it kind of it kind of was. And I remember at the time. I, I mean, I'd never done anything like this. So auditioning mm. had become kind of normal over the six months that I'd been in the workshop. It wasn't the auditioning that we know today. They'd just come and sit and watch a workshop and they go, oh, I'd like to see that kid. And, mm. and you know, and and it's funny, I'm, I'm jumping forward, but I remember when I first came out of drama school and auditioning for things, and friends of mine who had only known drama school were getting rejection after rejection, as we do as actors. Mm. getting really disheartened but because from the age of 14 I was so used to that rejection mm. the rejection oh you go up for this or you audition for that you know it didn't it was like water off a duck's back because I was like oh well you don't get every job that's just how it is because yeah, yeah, yeah. but anyway so I went off to there were there were four of us um there was myself a guy who was my best friend at the time Ian Kirkby who was still an actor it was Chris Gascoigne, who had been in Coronation Street for years now, a wonderful actor, but he's been in Coronation, Peter, Peter Barlow he plays, mm. Chris Gascoigne, another actor called Simon Schatzberger. The four of us went away from home, stayed in a really nice, I was going to say a posh hotel, but it was the Holiday Inn, but the Holiday Inn was really great back then. They did the Holiday Inn in Birmingham and in Swiss Cottage, because we came to London to rehearse this drama that was going to be filmed in Birmingham. And we, stay, uh, we filmed at a place called Cecil, Cecil Sharp House, which is... Oh, yeah. I know. No, it's yeah, yeah. And, um, and it used to be... It was a thing for years. Every time I drove past the, um, the Holiday Inn in, in Swiss Cottage, I'd say, that's where I stayed, you know, my first... Uh, <laughs> that's where it all began. That's where it all began. So, yeah, so I went off, filmed this drama, and I remember <laughs> coming back. And at the same time, was auditioning for other things and not getting them. And, you know, no big deal. Still mm. not um, aware that acting was a could be a career still mm. it was and I have to say um when I joined the workshop I met and coming from a you know and I'm not playing no violin here but coming from a, a relatively poor council estate in Nottingham mm. I met going to the drama group I met really really at, at that age of 14 what I considered really really rich kids mm. and really, really poor kids and if I look through, through back now I think some of those poor kids, the malnourished kids that we talk about uh, on mass today, who weren't eating a, a, a school meal or weren't eating a hot meal in the evening. If I if I look back and I think about some of mm. them, and it was my first introduction, extreme wealth. I remember going going on the bus and seeing kids getting dropped off on these posh cars. I mean, mm. thinking, oh my god, oh my god, you know. But not in any way that was like I I felt 
um, that I was lesser than. But what it, it just opened my eyes more than you were just you know, observing it, really, just sort of seeing it. it. Yeah. yeah, completely. And so, um, and it was a wonderful, amazing experience. And as and as I'm sure you know, there were lots of really brilliant young actors that came out of the, that that um, that school, uh, that 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 um, that workshop, the drama workshop, which is still running today. It's now called, I think, it's just called the Television Workshop because Central and most of the regional TV stations have gone now. But yeah, so because it was funded by Central Television. They could have who they wanted. They didn't have to be lovely middle-class liberal parents who, you know, who could um, afford it. Yeah, who could, afford, who could afford it, and so it meant that opportunity for all, which is you know, which is uh, it's fantastic. It is it is an, inc- an incredible scheme, and you know, the, the amazing if there could be more of those today. But I'm I'm interested in so you were saying that still at that time, still as a 14 year old kid, you you weren't still seeing it as a viable career path. You were kind of still seeing it as a bit of fun was it was it like you know was yeah. it was it like playing tennis with mrs turner was it just a bit of a bit of you know a bit of a laugh when when was the switch for you then when was that moment that you actually thought oh hang on a second i think this might have a bit of longevity in it when well, when was the turn basically the the solid truth of that is that i then started getting other tv work through that and at some point the woman who ran the workshop said you know that and she said it to a, a group of us um, she said, you know, this can actually be a career. This can actually, you can go to drama school. And I was like, drama school? Okay, what's that? So we started doing, so then I got to 16 and we started doing the over 16s group of, um, where her husband, Bob Hescott, who was a classically trained actor and he was a writer and stuff, he would then take the over 16s and we would do classical text and we'd pick speeches. And I was like, wow. Because, but listen, having said that, each week, I mean, we, we were so privileged. We went to the RSC. When we were in the, the normal group, we went to the RSC. I remember, I remember seeing Romeo and Juliet at the RSC. And that was a massive, massive um, turning point for me as well. And I think that was another uh, point where I realized, oh, my God, this is viable. Because, and I've since met him on many occasions, I saw Hugh Quashy play Tybalt mm. at the RSC. Right? Mm. And, and I was, I'm sure I was 15 at the time. And again, without getting too melodramatic about it, I saw this black man on stage. And I was like, fucking hell, what? He's mm-hmm. up on that stage playing this amazing part. And to me, he looked like he was 10 foot tall. I remember thinking, mm-hmm. wow, I was so, and I remember what he had on as well. I remember he had this amazing leather suit, this huge leather sort of collar, rough on his thing. Anyway, years later, I was on the tube. And I saw him sitting opposite me. And it stayed with me. I was, I was in London by this time. I'd been in my career. And I saw him, I thought, oh my God, that's Hugh Quashy. And I, and I was coming to my stop. And I literally, I got up and I said, oh, excuse me, Mr. Quashy. He said, um, you inspired me as an actor, as a young man growing up, blah, blah, blah. I saw you play Tibble at the RSC. And he was like, oh, oh, thank you. And I thought, I'm just going to hit him with that and then leave. And of course, classically, mm-hmm. He was getting off at the same stop, and I was like, "Oh my god! Now, now, now he's got to walk down the stairs with this idiot guy who's just oh no, I've got to keep this going." (laughs) (laughs) What was the rest of the conversation like? What was the what was the following exchange like? Yeah, I just thought you were great, man. Yeah, so good. But it was funny because um, it was at Kilburn Station, and he was going to the tricycle, and uh, he 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 actually said to me, "Oh." Well, that's interesting because I've just come back from Japan where we've been talking about that production. And I can't remember if he'd 
been resurrecting that production or he'd just been doing a workshop on that production but he was lovely it, it wasn't it wasn't terrible at all but for me i just wanted to i'd had this fantasy of just kind of going there's my idol i'm just going to tell him that and i'm just going to move on and which i which i ha did have that experience many years later in new york i bumped into i bumped <laughs> into john Turturro. you know john Turturro? oh yeah, yeah. fantastic actor. i was standing on the subway and it was one of those moments and i saw him and i just thought i'm in new york when is this going to happen mm. and he looked cool as fuck and i went over and of course i'd seen all of spike lee stuff since uh, at that point and he was in loads of spike lee's early movies mm. and amazing stuff since that and i just went i said oh mr tutura and he's like hi i said uh, i just want to say i love your work i'm an actor from the uk i just want to say i've seen all your work over the years and i think you're amazing and he's like oh thanks great and then i did my thing which was walk away left nice. me with that i was like i was like yeah that's what i wanted to do <laughs> anyway so yeah so so combination of things so going to the rsc we worked with Tress trestle theater company came to um, work with us so did complicite as kids from varying backgrounds we had all this opportunity all this stuff that was that you want for every again violin you want for everyone mm. expose them to everything give them the opportunities that are not just open to because you you've got you've got masses of wealth it's like wow this and then uh, on top of that being told oh you know you can go to drama school this can mm. be a career so i started doing the classical thing i started you know and by this point i have to also say because i've been doing a lot of tv i'd always worked i'd done a paper round i worked in men's shops and blah, blah you know men's wear shops and stuff but i'd always worked and because i'd started working in tv i started i had some money so then i started to audition right enough for drama school so i auditioned i think i auditioned for nearly every drama school mm. for like 10 or 11 drama schools and if you think as a 17 year old the normal 17 year old the idea of getting the fee together for the train and getting the money together to pay for yeah. auditions which of course we we're all well aware of nowadays how hard it is and how expensive it is mm -hmm. and kind of drama schools are becoming a bit of a uh, monoculture again um when i it's went it's fucking expensive yeah expensive right so so i had the money to audition and i and i and i you know i wasn't like some fast and loose because i'd grown up with without much money so you know i was trying to save it and trying to think of good things to do so i auditioned drama school and i went and i um yeah and i remember the first the first year I auditioned, I auditioned at loads of places. I recalled at RADA, recalled at Bristol, got rejections from loads of others and got a place at East 15, got a place at Arts Ed. And, um, and I really loved Bristol and I was really stoked to get a recall at um, RADA because, of course, that was all I'd heard of, really. Mm. Um, and my drama teacher said, go to Arts Ed. You'll really enjoy it. And I knew nothing about Arts Ed. And I have to say, I absolutely loved my time and i don't know what it's like we're talking about <laughs> something years ago now um but, uh, so I, I oh the audio broke up a little bit there i just uh just I don't, know what a second, there, right? I don't know what happened yeah weird that um <laughs> but, but i i um i loved the training because the training was really intense it was um a very heavy method and um and at times was kind of a bit brutal but i was just like yeah bring it on bring it mm. on and and i think at that point um it was impossible to get a job without an equity card i'd had, an, I'd had a child equity card since i was 14 mm. so i came out of drama school got an agent and then i suppose became a job in actor blah 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 you know and so when you were doing that then where was 
where was fitness in all of this then? Were you still were you still like doing a little bit of everything, a bit of tennis, a bit of running, or did that sort of fall on the back burner for a bit? Because you kind of well, you've come back to it full circle now, and we'll get onto that sort of later. Well, what, but what happened was, I think when I when I really got into the acting at sort of forty fifteen, I still played tennis hmm. and I still was in the football team, but they started to take a, a real um, yeah, they were really in the back 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 burner for me. Yeah. It kind of sparked something for me, acting and drama and theatre, really sparked something. And it took me a long time. If I think now, when I first, and then also, you know, when you, <laughs> this is really pretentious, but when you, when you play tennis, people always say, oh, I play a bit of tennis. And mm. then you go and play, and you go, oh, bloody hell, they can barely get the ball over the net. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, I can't this. I remember um, my best mate, uh, Poi Fan Lee, um, infamously Poe in the Teletubbies, um, we we came to she was in the workshop the, the the central workshop and we started drama school at the same time she went to lambda and I went to arts ed but she always played tennis so we we and over the years we shared various flats together and stuff so we played tennis but I did a job so so sport sport was kind of out for me and if I think about it I didn't really play tennis I didn't do any I didn't do any running all I did was concentrate on and also, yeah. during, that time, during that time, I was doing a job between um, drama school. So I worked in restaurants and stuff. So there was not much time. I always had a bike in London. That's the thing. I always had a bike in London, mm. um, but just to get from A to B. And, you know, a lot of the time I was on the tube and sometimes I'd be on, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't fitness for me. It was just about getting from A to B. So yeah, I always yeah, had a bike. Yeah. I did a play at the Fimbra Arms and the writer of that was a, a guy called Aidan Healy. Mm. And again, he was kind of a... a working class lad not that that's important but i suppose in the, because of tennis not really being a working class sport i discovered that he played tennis and mm. i was like yeah but do you really play tennis yeah. <laughs> yeah. and we ended up playing tennis and we became great friends because we played tennis all the time together after that job we became uh, great mates for years because we just played tennis all the time and so that for a long time was my sport i didn't mm. do anything else play tennis i remember sometimes through the summer i'd get one of those five liter bottles of buxton go to the tennis course and we'd be there for five six hours just hitting the ball back and forth and and then and then so um, um along the way um i be, i got a, a regular job on the bill so i was on the bill for four years mm. and in and out of this time i joined gyms and um i did a bit of you know but I um, there was a guy. Was there just just to just to pause yeah. you on one thing then? So that shift from um, from coming into the land of TV because this is also something I'm really interested in in terms of actors and that shift into TV. And you mentioned there you started going to gyms. Now was that was that something you were actively interested in doing, or was it because there was a shift to TV? Was there a, a sort of feeling that you might need to start going to the gym? Was there an aesthetical thing starting to creep in a little bit as well? Uh, you know what, hand on heart, not at all. I never thought of it like that, purely because as well, it wasn't, it didn't feel as, I mean, obviously these days you see young guys now are obsessed with their physique and obsessed with their figures mm. and obsessed with pulling their shirt up and six pack and all the rest of it. Now, when I was, when I, I mean, I, I skipped a great deal when I was younger, two of my good mates, Bonner and Wattsy, <laughs> Andy, Andy Bonner and Andy Watts, yeah. we used to go to the gym together. We used to go to, it was probably Gold's Gym uh, in Nottingham. We went to Gold's oh, Gym. Oh, right, okay. Time where I used to go to the gym. And we were really into 
going to the gym. And I think at the time, maybe you paid three quid or something. Hmm. And um, so I was all, there was always a period of time where I had these different factions of my life. I had my, my um, drama mates and I had my tennis thing. And then I also had my two gym buddies who were Bon and Watsi. And um, so I went to the gym and then at some point I left, went to London, gave all that up. Um, and, and so tennis became my thing for a long time. When I start, so when I started the bill, the guy who's still my best friend now, Chris Simmons, uh, was one of the cast. He said to me one day, he said, oh, do you want to go and play golf at um, the Belfry? I was like, what? Golf? He's like, yeah, no, no, it's, um, it's, um, we, we, it's, a, it's a charity event. We um, play in Coronation Street. Um, it's the Bill versus Coronation Street. I was like, oh, it's, a, it's at the Belfry. I was like, don't know what that is, mate not interested goal and for years i'd been up and down to st andrews because my partner katrina at the time katrina she was from scotland and her parents lived in st andrews and we used to walk the golf courses you know i'm never interested in the slightest if it was on the tv i was like what is that turn it off basically he said <laughs> yeah but it's an all-expenses paid weekend drink and eat as much as you like and we could play some i was like yeah i'm in <laughs> literally my introduction was golf because it was a free weekend and we ended up um going to the driving range and so then i started getting into playing golf and it, it sort of became my my mistress in a way because i'd be like i'd be at work i'd have the golf clubs in the boot of my car i think oh i'm gonna i'm gonna go to um, play some golf after work mm. and uh, yeah we finished late uh, sorry darling we finished late <laughs> I, uh, I um yeah i can't believe yeah so i I'd, I'd started playing a lot of golf do you think that links back then? Was it, were you, were you, when you were playing golf, were you, were you going to courses and like doing a full round or were you going to driving ranges? What, what was it you were doing? I was doing, doing both, doing both. Cause I was going to the driving range cause I, I really liked that and actually improving. I've played at some amazing, amazing courses all around, all around the world, all around Europe and have played on some places that my golf handicap would never allow me to play at just purely because I went on, celebrity i say celebrity as opposed to celebrity z list z list tours <laughs> golf tours um and i played on some amazing courses that i was just hacking around i was like god this is fantastic but i did mm. enjoy the game i missed a big thing i um i oh, am yeah. um, i always wanted to i even growing up i always wanted to do um I always wanted to do a martial art or I wanted to do boxing or something. Well, this is something I actually wanted to ask you about, actually. And I'm glad that you've pivoted back to it because when we were talking a little bit earlier about the Central Junior Television Workshop, there was a, there's, there's a director that is kind of synonymous with that workshop. And that is Shay Meadows, who you have worked with. And you were in his first feature, 24-7, which was all about a boxing club and about Bob Hoskins, who was the yeah. sort of empresario of this boxing club. And if anyone hasn't seen that film, I heartily recommend it. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal bit of filmmaking. Yeah. What was the lead into that job? Did you, because a lot of his stuff is improvised as well. Was, was there a, did you do boxing beforehand or how, how did that come about? And what was the link to you in terms of boxing? Well, that's really interesting because by that time I'd already, I was already in London and I'd been to drama school and I was a jobbing actor and right. I didn't know Shane, but obviously he was now, um, he was living in Nottingham and he was making his own short films and doing his own thing. And I think Small Time, which was a short that he did, which won lots, won lots of awards and went to various film festivals, gave him the money and the finance to do 24 seven. Hmm. I auditioned along with lots of other people and the, and I think the reason I got the audition was because I think Ian Smith who was 
now the leader of the workshop, he was like, oh, you should see this lad, Carl, who used to be in the workshop. And they were seeing people in London. And at this time, at this point, he was just putting together an ensemble. Mm. I auditioned along with everyone else. Actually, if you watch the film, um, my brother's in that film as mum. My younger brother's an actor. And he's five years younger than me. And most of the other guys in that film are around his age. I'm basically one of the oldest in the group of young kids because I was already in London and doing my thing. With my brother never went to drama school and a lot of the other guys in that were sort of either had little, little or no experience or again were just products of the junior television workshop. Mm. Uh, so I got a part in that and then we, we trained. We actually trained for about two or three weeks beforehand. Awesome. Which was fantastic because all that sort of stuff I absolutely love. I love anything where it's like, right. I, I think I would have been, I'd have been great uh, in the army, apart from the, the on the front line, because I could quite happily take instruction, get my head down, and just do it. And it's like, yeah, if that's what you're going to tell me to do. Yeah, I'm going to do. You it. like that sort of structure, oh, that regimentation of it. I love. No, definitely, definitely. And also, I love pitting myself, my strength against against that. And um, doing that training was fantastic. I loved it. I mean, you know, you said to your your listeners, they must watch that film. As someone who's in that film, it is one of those jobs where you go, oh my God, this is a film that I would have loved to have been in. And I'm like, I'm fucking in it. <laughs> and it is, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful film, beautiful bit of filmmaking. I did then do um, Shane's next uh, feature, which was um, Room for Romeo Brass. Um, Great movie. And very, yeah, brilliant. But <laughs> uh, he, by this time I was at the bill, and he called me up and uh, he said, oh, I've written this scene. And the way he works as well is very improvisational. And sometimes you watch his film and they meander and you think, well, why is this scene here? It's just a slice of life. It doesn't necessarily send the, the story forward, but it just gives you a little slice. And so he'd written this very funny scene. And even at the time I'm thinking, oh, this is really funny, but um, this is just a little interlude. Mm. So, and I was filming at the, at the bill at the time and they gave me the time to go and do it. Went up, shot it, very funny. My brother, months later, was in London, because he, he's in the film, um, doing some ADR, some additional dialogue recording. And he said, oh, I was having a great laugh in the studio with Shane. I was like, oh, what were you laughing about? He said, laughing about the fact that he's cut you out of the film. I was like, <laughs> so I've actually never seen the scene that he wrote that we shot. I've never oh, seen no. it. I wonder if it, well, I don't know. I'm well, sure I did not. think when you mentioned it, I was like, I can't remember seeing you in that Carl. I did think that, but then I was like, I do, I don't want to bring that up because I, maybe, maybe I just missed you. I don't know. But, um, oh no, is maybe, maybe a DVD extra, maybe, maybe there's a deleted scene yeah, or something. It, it might be, it might be. But, um, I then, by this time I'd actually started doing martial arts in London. By this time I'd started doing Taekwondo. So you'd so started Taekwondo before going back. Was that, so that was that, a direct result of doing 24-7 or was that something you'd started doing prior to doing 24-7? I started doing that prior to 24-7 and in fact what happened was um, I'd always wanted to do martial arts. I started working on a job for Taliban Theatre Company and, and growing I mean you know, and, I, and I have to put this addendum in there when I the state I was growing up on there was loads of boxing clubs and things like that but it always felt really like um, some sort of hard men who just wanted to beat up kids you know and i was like i was never attracted to that. i was like i'm not interested in just like fighting people in the street and when i met i met this actor i worked with uh talawa and he talked about his uh, martial arts that he he did i was like no this is what i want i want something that's about the 
the art, the martial art, the art mm. form. Again, the regimen that I talked about, the discipline. Mm. And I went to, and, I, and he took me along to his, um, my, and by this time, I'd also become friends with Adrian Lester, who, whose wife is Lalita Chakrabarti. And I can't remember how we both got into it. Adrian, Adrian wanted to do martial arts. So we started going to this martial arts in, in Hackney together through a, a good friend of mine. I went there and the master, the sensei, was this Afro-haired black guy, Master Trevor Codner. And it kind of fit into all these sort of stereotypes of Enter the Dragon, you know. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, who is this guy? And he was the most, honestly, the spirit from that man, even now, he was just the most gentle, kindest, simple bloke. And I was like, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I wanted. Mm. I didn't want some bloke who's in a room going, beating up little kids and then sending them out on the street to beat up other people. I wanted someone to, which was actually, which had discipline and an art and all the rest of it. And so Adrian and I did um, Taekwondo for a good few years. And then basically what happened was when I started the bill, I ended up playing football, did my cruciate ligament, completely had my um, leg re, uh, my knee reconstructed. And that mm. put paid to all my martial arts. Over the years, I've gone back, backwards and forwards. But it, it, you know, I just changed a different place in my life. And it's funny because Adrian still does martial arts and he's a, he's a second damn black belt now. And I always think, God, if I'd still been going, I'd be a second damn black belt at least. Oh, no. uh, so what was that? Was that, a, what, was that just a, a kickabout with people in the bill? How did that, was it, or were you playing some sort of game? What? Well, um, the bill had a, um, a football team because, you know, a lot of these um, shows they have, um, football teams or netball teams or whatever because they do lots of charity events right and, when I first started, they were like, and I haven't played football for a long time mm. actually and so we were doing a charity football match at Ascot Races and it was the Bill versus a Celebrity 11 and we had our shirts with the Bill on and all the rest of it and um, I, I went in for a tackle and um, basically went down like I'd never been honestly it was like someone had taken an axe cut you down in the middle I went mm. down and the whole of the the, um, the main stand, the royal stand, people watching and your adrenaline kicks in. And I was like, so um, <laughs> Rhino from the Gladiators, who was the opposite goalie, he helped carry me off. And, uh, and someone came out of the stands and said, oh, they're a physio, let me have a look. And I was like, the adrenaline is pumping. I'm like, oh, I think it's all right. I think she, she was going, yeah, yeah, I think we just sprained it, just sprained it. Of course, I went back on and within about a minute and a half, I just went, I just heard, bang and I went down mm. and um and I completely ruptured my cruciate ligament on my right knee Oof. and uh, I spent the rest of that um glamorous event in the St John's ambulance um holding pen underneath the royal stand and all my mates the first um event that I'd invited a charity event I'd invited all my mates to so all my mates were there all dressed up the night and I was literally you're in the, the ambulance <laughs> and they brought me dinner down I'm like we're having a great time. Here's your lunch. It's like, oh, great. No. So I ended up going to the hospital after that. The next day, I mean, so dramatic. It was the 25th of July, 1999. And the 26th of July was my 30th birthday. And, and it, I mean, it, it was so depressing because both martial arts and tennis, I talked about very heavy on the knees, never mm. had any issue with my knees before and then go and play a stupid charity football match and literally take my bloody cruciate ligament out. 
And it, for those people that don't know, I mean, your cruciate ligament is like an X at the back of your knee that gives you the flexion, which gives you the rotation. And so uh, uh, it's a real classic injury for rugby players because they get hit from the side when they're running straight. Mm. It's a classic for skiers if they go over. And in fact, I remember when I did mine, one of the um, uh, script editors at the bill, the same time I did mine, a couple of months later, she did both of hers skiing. Ooh. Oh my God. So, yeah. So you can actually come back with skiing. You can actually get a brace for your legs that stops that rotation. And I had skied once in the past and I'd loved skiing and I'd love to have skied again. And because um, I, again, I, I enjoyed it so much, but I just wouldn't take the chance now. No way. No way. When it goes or when it went for you, like, is it akin to, because I, I, I've worked with actors uh, and with people who've had their Achilles tendon go, mm. go and they've mm. described it as, it was like the sound of a gun going off because the, the amount of tension that runs through that tendon yeah. at the bottom of your oh, foot is so oh. taut. Was, was it, did you just was there a, did you know straight away was it was there like a snapping banging sort of sensation when it went it wasn't, wasn't like that but i remember i i got taken out uh, and then i came back on and was like oh it just feels like a sprain and it felt like a sprain it didn't feel like a tear and i'd never experienced anything like that and because obviously adrenaline but then when it did go and it was a complete rupture it literally it didn't go off like a gun sound it was it was like i just knew it was almost like i've gone it was so almost innocuous, but searingly painful, I just knew. But I actually, and when you talk about the Achilles, I was actually playing tennis one day when someone on a, lo- a court, two or three down from me, theirs went. And it was, a, it was an older guy. I remember I was playing one of my marathon matches. I was playing with my mate. And I literally heard, it was that loud. And I was like, oh. and he went down. I was like, geez, ambulance came, the whole thing. That was his Achilles. I mean, just horrific, horrific sound. But yeah, so yeah, so it really set me back, and and I did, yeah, I did, I did get depressed. And if you're someone who depressed is a strong word, but it got me down because if you're someone who is a is in sync with their body, but also does play a lot of sport and is very active, it's like it's where you get your, it's where you get your your solace, isn't it? It's where you mm. get your kind of like your spark and where your little excitement comes and also is something that keeps you from a lot of people you hear they say oh well uh, when i'm feeling a bit down and when i'm feeling depressed i go for a run you go yeah, yeah absolutely you get from sport so yeah it did for me but i have to say my re my rehabilitation and the physio that i got the treatment afterwards was brilliant but again trying to work at the same time was really hard um and although the bill were very good to me they had their schedule to keep and so i um i had to i had to do both and I suppose if I was a professional sportsman, then I would never even know that I'd had that injury because, you know, you'd just be like, eat this, take this, drink now, sit mm. now, stretch, you know. Um, but I was trying to um, live at the same time. Um, and that also then put paid to my taekwondo, which was just like, for me, was just amazing. I just loved that. That was two hours of just where I would sweat like a beast. Mm. And it was a bit of an adventure for me, um, taekwondo in the in a kind of like karate kid way because it was it wasn't where near i it wasn't near where i lived it was right in the deep deepest darkest parts of hackney back in the day when there was no um flat whites or bearded hippies uh, <laughs> or bearded um you know um the hipsters that, that's the word um 
um, it was proper old school Hackney. And I used to have to get the overground. Before it was the overground, it was the North London line, which was like, oh, the next train is in 32 minutes, but unfortunately it's not going to run tonight. So it was like a big kind of like a, like a, um, adventure, not adventure, it was almost like part, part, of, part of my training, Taekwondo, was, part, was actually the journey there as well. The quest to get to the... Yeah, it was. It was that show. There was that show. You, you won't remember it, but it was called Kung Fu with um, David... Carradine thinking. Oh yes, no, I do yeah. know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I was always on this quest, and, and because my um, Taekwondo master was such a beautifully soft-spirited man, but you would not really would not. Want yeah. To but um, I, it was always part of the journey was part of my training, and um, so I, I loved that. But yeah, so that 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 took that away from me really overnight, and um, and then obviously lots of other things take over because then I had my daughter, and you know the idea of having your quest to taekwondo an hour there an hour back and plus two hours training it's like and with a sort of dodgy knee doesn't yeah. really fit and it's funny because i still feel like oh i do martial arts but i haven't done it for years but it's with my teacher it really was kind of like the regimen and the and the spirit in which it's taught is just so brilliant that i think it's kind of part of who i am still Really? And have you yeah, taken yeah. that practice into other sports that you've gone on to sort of pursue, do you think? Do you think it laid a foundation? I, th I think so. But you know what? I actually also think that um, it just enhanced what I had because I think I always had that, that kind of um, focus and dedication when it came to sport and, and that uh, single-minded kind of focus. Mm. Um, so it sort of, it was... <laughs> not being too corny it was what i was searching for in a way and mm. i think at that age as well where you go well i'm i can't really be running around 11 aside um you know twice a week and blah 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 but this was just like it was powerful it was exertion and so you know you sweated for two hours it was physical but it was also it was it was delicate and you know <laughs> being in some of those classes delicate is not really the word you would use <laughs> but the, the love that the people had in the room for each other even when they were <laughs> coming at each other with full force mm. was was fantastic because there was no malice involved and there was no like uh, we're the hard men and we're going to show you it was like no we're, t we're teaching an art and it really was it really felt like an art yeah so that that did that did set me back and then and then obviously i i realized that cycling had always been in my life mm. But then it felt like it uh, wasn't as weight-bearing. I bought a bike, which was a, a kind of fast hybrid, uh, which meant that it kind of was a, it was a flat bar hybrid, but it mm -hmm. had thinner wheels. It had a, a stronger ratio on the gearing. So it was a bit more like a road bike. So then, and it also meant that I could get the sweat on that I'd enjoyed with other sports that I'd done, but I didn't have the impact, impact mm -hmm. on my knees and stuff. And, and especially with, well, not especially, but with bikes, if you, again, it's like that whole swimming thing. If you've got your bike set up in the right way, it should never feel like painful because mm. your knees are in the right position. Your back is in the right position. Everything about it is just flows. And, and in the time that I've done triathlon and I've done sportive cycling, I've always gone to get my, have a bike fit. So, you know, you go to a, a bike shop and, um, and they literally sit you on a stationary bike or on your bike that you bring in and they go, right, they do all the measurements, seems really innocuous. You get on the bike and it's like, oh my God, 
there's no twinges anywhere. It feels effortless riding. And even when you put your put the hammer down, it's like, oh, this just feels like it's an extension of my body, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's wonderful. And I just and I and I recently got you know a Condor bike, which has kind of been my dream for a long time uh, to have a Condor. Condor, what is it? Uh, is it a, a lighter, Condor. faster? Well, Condor's a brand. Condor's a brand, and they literally have one shop in in um, Holborn in the Grazing Road. They still make all their frames in Italy, which are you know the golden age of cycle building. Mm. Uh, they make all their frames in Italy, and um, they make lightweight steel frames, aluminium frames, and carbon frames. Carbon. The carbon thing is with carbon frames is they're much more unforgiving. So you take a lot of bashing through your body, but mm. they're lightweight. And then your steel frames are kind of what you would use for long, long distance endurance and maybe um, not obviously professionals because they all use carbon. Um, but um, if you're going on like a nice tootle um, along with your panniers, steel is better because it's kind of much more takes the, the, the abuse goes through the frame as opposed to your body. Aluminium is somewhere in between. And I'd always wanted a Condor bike. And in fact, all the years that I've had my, my old workhorse, specialised workhorse, I, I've been into Condor to get them to fit me when I was doing my sporties and when I was doing my triathlon. Mm. And always this fantasy that I would one day have a Condor. And um, I actually was looking for one because I got, I've had bikes for years, always locked them up. And I've, in the last year, I've had two bikes stolen. And I've <sighs> never had a bike stolen before. And, um, and one was just before I went to cycle to Paris. I don't even think I told you about that, did I? No, I you didn't. You didn't. I cycled, I cycled London to Paris for a significant birthday. Um, uh, and, that, uh, so you significant. Yeah, <laughs> before. Yeah, we had an audio problem before when you were talking uh, about age as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's strange that it keeps coming back. So also, it's also really important to, to clarify for the listeners as well because uh, you can obviously tell by listening to Carl that uh, the the love for cycling runs incredibly deep and it runs so deep that he is actually sporting a cycling jersey at, uh, he's in full cycling regalia as we record this podcast that's also very important to know well well the, the, the funny thing is that I'm I think yesterday was the first time in a long time that I actually haven't been on a bike and I I was in jeans uh, a shirt and a jumper and I was like oh my god and normal shoes I go everywhere on my bike and I go to auditions dressed in my bike gear and if I need to change I might take something to change or I'm just like listen if they're worried about me being in cycling shoes then and that's why I'm not getting a job then it's stupid so I don't, yeah. I don't need to like those people but I'm literally always in my cycling gear and I'm, I'm still what is it it's nearly November I'm still in I'm still in shorts as well so come on bring it on yeah, I've, um, that's the Nottingham in you. That's the sort that's of the Nottingham yeah. in me. But it, but it's weird. I, I know it's so ridiculous as well. But I could probably count on one hand how many times I've worn long trousers this year. Totally <laughs> because I'm always on my bike. I'm always on my bike. So um, yeah, so I'm in cycling gear because I'm actually at a friend's house doing this. So I cycled over here, um, and I've got my Knights of Mobay cycling jersey on, and my Rafa. Um, cycling pants padded pants uh, and yeah. knights of mobay uh, this is the company that does um sort of specific cycling clothing from the well from well yeah. your it's your heritage isn't it that's on yeah, on this yeah. particular top yeah so yeah so they I, I was looking for the uh, team gb um cycling top and i i found them this was from 2012 
Yeah, so 2012 Olympics, I was desperately wanted to get the cycling team, G, team GB jersey, and uh, I couldn't afford it. And it wasn't crazily expensive. I was just skint at the time. It was one of those moments in an actor's life where you're just like, yeah, this is the famine bit. And so yeah. I, was, <laughs> I was absolutely skint. Ah, yes. And um, my, um, my sister was visiting from the States, but she just said, oh, you should get it. And I was like, I can't afford it. And then I, I, I was on... Um, the internet. I thought, I wonder if you can get them from Jamaica. I wonder if you can get Jamaica, Team Jamaica. And I found this company called Knights of Mo Bay, as in Knights of the Round Table, Mo Bay, as in Montego Bay. And they do cycling gear for all different nations, generally with a, a sort of black cultural perspective. So the one I'm wearing at the moment is kind of like Afrocentric. It's got red, gold, and green and black writing, uh, um, um, livery, and then through the middle it says Irie which is kind of Jamaican for everything's cool. And then, um, okay. and then I also bought a Jamaica one. They have, they have like Senegal, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Ghana, the whole of the Caribbean islands. Cause this guy who started it is a mad cyclist, but he's of Jamaican heritage. He now lives in the States and he started this company probably for the same reason as I was looking for the Jamaica um, cycling stuff. He just thought, Oh, you can't get stuff that is, yeah. And I have since bought a Team GB, and I've never worn it. I've actually still got it in the packet. I <laughs> love it. But, um, but yeah, so, so I've got lots of um, Team Jamaica and, you know, um, um, other culturally relevant. Um, I, wish the, I wish the listeners could see it. It is beautiful. I definitely recommend it. If, that, if, if that's something that you, you, uh, you might be interested in, checking out the Knights of Mobay for sure. So let's go back then to, to Cruciate Ligament. Mm-hmm. Starting to cycle more, starting to get a little bit interested in triathlons now. Is that that starting to creep in? Because I know you, you've 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 done a fair few now. But when when was your first? How did it go? And what was your lead up to that that triathlon? Well, it's funny because a mate of mine, who's uh, mine and his daughters were friends at school, and so we we, we became mates. And my daughter was really good at swimming actually so i used to go to all the um galas swimming galas oh yeah and i always used to watch thinking god i mean it's like it's effortless especially when they're kids as well because you know what you like when you're a kid and the teacher goes okay this is what i want you to do you do this you do this you do this and that will happen and of course kids don't question it they're not looking for the shortcut they just go okay i'll do that yeah so go through the water it's beautiful and so i'd go swimming and i'd be like this is such an effort but I enjoy it because it's, you know, exercise. Again, it's such an effort. So this mate of mine, he's like, oh, he does triathlon. So I'm like, oh, I'm, I might fancy a bit of that. And then reading blogs about triathlon, all the blogs say swimming, getting your swimming technique down is the most important because mm. that's where you drown. And also that's where you can shave off, you know, time, blah, blah, blah. So I decided I'm going to go and do some adult swimming classes. So I signed up some adult swimming classes. Although I could swim, 20 lengths felt like a marathon for me. Um, and so I'd come out feeling like I really worked hard. You know, I'd been, been in the pool for 40 minutes and 20 lengths. I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> and then so I signed up for these adult classes and um, I signed up for the advanced because I figured, well, if, you're, if they're out offering advanced classes for learning to swim, it must be people who can swim but just need a bit more technique. So I went along, and thankfully, there were only three or four people in the class out of um, could have been a capacity of 10. So it was really very almost, you know. Getting a lot of individual great, attention. Yeah, great ratio. And um, 
the teacher said to me the first week, um, so do, do a couple of lengths, let me see. So I did a couple of lengths, and at the end I was like, <clears throat> and he said, yeah, yeah, you, you can swim, but it's all like, <clears throat> so it was like it's going through treacle. And I said, that's exactly what it feels like. That's what it feels like. <laughs> I swear to you, no word of a lie, within two weeks, two classes, he completely changed my technique. And I remember maybe that third week, I went just swimming by myself. And I remember doing a mile in the pool and thinking, oh my God, I've just run a mile. And because it's like, it's like walking. If your technique is right and mm. you breathe and you, 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 you stroke, you rest between each stroke, you rest between each kick on your legs and you breathe at the right time, you should be able to just swim all day. And that sounds bizarre, but it really is that feeling. Once you get, at the beginning, once you get through that, that bit where you're questioning what you're doing. Oh my God, do I want to be in the pool today? Oh my God, my breathing's not right. You get to that equilibrium where your cadence and your rhythm just fits in and you're just listening to your breathing or you're thinking about whatever it is, you know, banality that's going on. You just get into this um, meditation and I just absolutely loved it. No, I was going to say, can you remember what, was there anything specific that he said that was like a penny dropping moment for you for like swim technique that was just like, ah, Uh, allowed yeah. it to unlock for you yeah there was because it took me a while in terms of the kicking was a while and he used to do this thing and i remember watching when i used to go and watch my daughter um, swim and i'd look down from the stand and i'd see the teacher shouting to her and then he'd literally just do this which is for your listeners is like two fingers like your whatever. So two fingers sort of sort of waggling sort of kicking waggling, but yeah kicking fingers on their side basically what they're saying is lift your legs lift your legs because obviously mm. your legs sink and that becomes drag right, Aye, so right. Drag and lift your legs and actually that is engaging your core and just lifting your legs and then so there were two things he said he was saying your when you're starting your heels should just feel them breaking the surface of the water mm. because if they're not then that means they're too deep and that means you're getting drag and the other thing was about when you do your stroke so I would be doing this big stroke where I take my hand underneath and I pull my hand right up and it'd be like a big windmill getting round and round going in the water. But it's like that energy that you're using outside of the water is actually not helping you. Right. So it's like you use so much force under the water to pull and then you come out with your elbow first is the first thing out. And then the rest of your arm is just relaxed until mm. it hits water again. So half of your motion of your arm is just relaxed so it's like when you're walking when you when your leg is in the air and it's not on the ground it's not doing anything it's just mm-hmm. relaxed until it engages the floor and it's the same with swimming it's like you're not doing any effort until your arm is in the water and that was the big thing and and as a visual person i think i had to keep visualizing that my arms out of the water rest my arms out of the water rest my arms out of the water and, and, and for me, that's what made a big difference is actually elbow out and just reach forward yeah, yeah. with no effort and then pull. That's where the energy is, not that whole big windmill out of the water. And that's why. Yeah. So so now um, I'm, I feel like I'm at the place where I can swim comfortably and effortlessly, mm. whatever that means for me anyway. So when so, did you put that into practice then? When, when did you sort of say, like, okay, all right, okay, I'm, my cycling's there, my swimming's there, let's, let's, let's put this to, to the test at a triathlon? Well my, well, my thing was like, well, I can, I can cycle, everyone can run, uh, albeit with a dodgy cruciate um, or rebuilt cruciate, um, and the swimming is the one that you have to practice. So my mate who was doing a few triathlons, he said, oh, you should come along. So the season starts about May, they do this um, 
Eton Dorney, which is where they had the Olympic rowing. So this yeah. iconic venue, open water. Um, and I was so excited, but also that as an actor, you'll know that kind of feeling of where first preview or during the end of the, the first, um, um, first dress or something, yeah. where your belly is just like riven with knots and you're just like, the toilet can never be close enough to you. <laughs> because you're just like, oh my God, oh my God. And as soon as he'd actually suggested the idea of doing a triathlon, I got that feeling. My belly was just upside down. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And I, and I was really, really scared. And I knew that was the feeling that excited me. It was that feeling that I get the excitement and fear that really pushed me forward. So I thought, oh yeah, I know that feeling. That's the feeling that before, that's the, the storm before the calm, the other way around. <laughs> that's the storm before the calm. And, um, and so I entered this triathlon, super sprint triathlon. They run loads and loads of um, triathlon, uh, triathlons. And that was, they do a super sprint, which is, 400 meter swim in open water, mm-hmm. 20k cycle, 5k run. So to me, straight away, I was thinking, well, I know I can do 400 meters easy and I can ride a bike. So, you know, just keep pedaling. And that 5k doesn't seem like far to run because although I've got a rebuilt bionic knee, I know it's going to handle <laughs> that. So I get, and of course, so I uh, approach this. My mate is obviously very competitive, quietly competitive, didn't tell me any, anything about um how the structure of the triathlon set up so i enter and in my head i'm thinking okay well just stay at the front of the um stay at the front of the swimmers before we start so then at least no one will get in your way and you're doing your thing and um so i get in the water i go to the front we're in deep water there's the officiator and the starter is like you know putting you through all these warm-up paces and we're having a laugh and music's playing and i'm jumping up and down in the water and i'm getting really excited 10 seconds to countdown, I, I, I get my, you know, head ready, and then the gun goes, oh my God, mate. <laughs> it's like, like, it's as like you are carrying triplets on your shoulders for the whole race, because people are swimming across you, swimming under you, kicking you in the face, your hand, your stroke hits someone in front of you and then you're like, and then you're also, because you're in, you know, you're in open water, you can't see more than three feet in front of you. So you've got a technique where you have to be spotting the boy ahead of you. So you're going in the right direction. You take two strokes, you look up, you're going in the wrong direction. You're bumping into someone. It's like after 50 meters, I was puffing like a bloody rhino, fighting for my breath, being kicked and battered and, um, and of course, and I started to, to having to do breaststroke. I barely made it round. And then, you know, I've got my wetsuit on um, and I'm trying to pull up the tape, the long tape that unpulls your zip. I'm literally stagger out of the water to get to my bike. I get to my bike, get my, I mean, I'm honestly, it's like, it's, it's like I've run a marathon, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm about to now cycle. It felt that painful. I got my, I literally got my, um, um, wetsuit down by my ankles trying to pull it off to get my trainers up to get my um, cycling shoes on to get my bike anyway about the first seven or eight kilometers on the bike was just me recovering thinking what am I doing here yeah. and then again I'm like oh my engine my engine's good I've got a good engine and eventually it stabilizes I'm thinking oh, okay this is good by the time I get to the run I'm a bit knackered still but I'm thinking okay I've, I've, I've got the grip I've got the hang of this and because I'd been so shit at the beginning I literally went home that day 
and I booked for the next week to do the <laughs> second one because I just thought, I'm not getting beaten by that. Honestly, I felt like such a numpty in the water. And, you know, and of course, you think that everyone's watching you and everyone knows you're terrible. So in my head, I'm going, no, I've got to prove that. I can move. I've got to prove that. Mm. I'm not terrible. I can swim. And of course, there's a stereotype that black people can't swim. So they're probably all going, oh, that poor, look at that poor black man. He's, he's, he's just trying. He's trying to swim. So, <laughs> so all the time that I'm like huffing and puffing in the water, I want to go, I can swim. I've, I've had lessons. I'm, I'm really good, really. So I, um, I go back the next week. And um, what I realized, I, I got a mate, funny enough, who's, a, who's an actor, Ace Batty, who lived for a, a long time in Staithes, which is on the northeast coast near Scarborough. And he volunteered as a life, lifeboatman. And he says, one of the things they tell you is if you fall off a boat or you go in the water, don't swim. You know, you've got to have, uh, you've got to stay Acclimatize. Yeah. Acclimatize. So um, what happens is your body's trying to do two things. It's trying to swim. So it's trying to survive and it's trying to warm itself up. And that's just too much. And that's why people end up getting out of breath and, you know, drowning. I'm sure there's more to it than that. But basically, so the next week I went along and I also thought, don't go near the front. Because the world and his mother, who have been swimming all their lives and are super fit, are just going to annihilate you. So I got in the water, opened my wetsuit, you know, let all the water in. I sat. I didn't tread water because that's energy in itself. I sat on the water, at the bottom of the water, just completely laid. And you literally feel your body equalizing. And I was like, oh, my God, I can actually feel like I'm getting warmer. So when the actually gun went off, I stopped at, started at the back. And started coming through the field. And as I went around, I thought, oh, God, I've got so much energy. Because all I'm thinking about is my technique, technique, lift the arm, lift the arm, keep the legs. Keep, you know, all those kind of um, mm. boring things that, the technical boring things that we do through rehearsals to get us to have a free-flowing performance, right? That mm. so you've done all your work. And I got through and I was like, oh, my God. And I'm passing people. I'm going through the field passing people. And then I get out and I've got all this energy and I've written my, and I, my this is amazing so it really um being um so abused that first week really spurred me on for the for the next event and actually that buzz and i still got that fear that that next week when i went along i still got mm. that fear but I, I, I recognized it as like oh that's because you need to be here you're supposed to be here so then i started doing some longer distances and and, and, and in fact, my mate who I first did them with, I would just enter on my own anyway and just do them regardless. I wasn't, you know, I was, again, doing it for myself, you know, mm. testing myself. It's what interesting I, you said after the first triathlon, you said you thought that people were, um, you thought you could hear other people's voices in your head when, do you think ultimately it was your own voice criticizing yourself in your head and that was the thing that dr drove you on? Oh, definitely. Because also straight away, I'd known the mistake I'd made, mm. which was like some stupid, not, I mean, so naive to think that, oh, I'll just stay at the front. Like, <laughs> like, like my month and a half of swimming lessons. <laughs> I love that idea, though. I love the idea of you just being like, yeah, yeah, this, this makes sense. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I'll probably win this thing. No worries. All right, let's go. I remember practicing the night before getting in and out of my um, wetsuit, thinking, yeah, I'm going to run out of the water, rip the... And of course, I'd watched, you know, um, the Brownlee brothers, and I'd, wa I'd watched some triathlon and seen how effortless they made it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, come out of the water, run out, yeah, straight into my... Honestly... <laughs> so yeah it was straight away it was a it was a um a note to myself don't be such an idiot <laughs> you haven't got this you haven't got this link at all you haven't got 
So uh, I love that. I, I think that's maybe maybe that's an actor's quality of like, yeah, 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 yeah. I watched a couple of YouTube videos. Yeah, did a couple of lessons. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you probably want to stay behind me. I'm probably going to win this thing. So uh, let's go. Let's go. So, so you learned your lessons from that one. You, you came back. You, you you found a bit more of a rhythm. So you started to enter more and more. Then were you doing yeah. longer distances and sort of increasing the yeah. the discipline more? Was your training ramping up then? Were you? What was your kind of what was your kind of training load then leading up to so, say, cause you did the, you did the, when you were up in um, Liverpool. Liverpool doing Hollyoaks, you did the Liverpool try. Was there, a, yeah. was there a specific block that you went through to train for that? Well, what, because again, as I say, I was always cycling. So, and, and you know, without my own trumpet, my engine has always been really good. I've always had quite a good stamina, whether I've been in sport or not in sport. So it's like, I might not play football for ages, but like, okay, you're blowing like a, you know, a nutter, but, like I can keep going. If I haven't run for ages, I can do the I can do the distance. Because also mm. the last thing I want is that idea that, oh, he's he's a bit shit, isn't he? So I'm never going to give up. That's probably a, a, a bad sign. I run through that mad injury. Not anymore. I've learned my lessons. But <laughs> um, in Liverpool, again, I didn't do much swimming. But what I did do, they had uh, in Albert Dock, and I'm sure you'll know Albert Dock. Mm. Um, they had a um, water sports centre in the dock. And they do all sorts of wakeboarding and God knows what else. But they have a um, open water swimming session, so you right. can go along, open water swimming. And because I'd entered the Liverpool try, um, I went along and did open water swimming in the jellyfish-infested Albert Dock. Mate, every part of your body and your being tells you you shouldn't be swimming with jellyfish. But uh, to be honest with you, I'm surprised there were even jellyfish in the Albert Dock. I remember as a young lad growing up in Liverpool, it was a big deal when the Mersey finally cleared, like got clean. Yeah. There was yeah. an advert on TV being like, look, we found fish in the river. Get on, get on this. Like, it was a mess. I'm surprised you even had jellyfish I, I was, in there. But I was scared of vile disease and all sorts of stuff. I was like, really? But they, but they assured us that it was clean. And I think, I mean, and it's so funny because the end of the, the, the dock where the jellyfish are, accumulate, it's kind of like the last bit of the dock, and I don't know which wharf it is, but then there's the wall, and then there's the open estuary, the other mm. side. And the difference in the clarity of the water on one side of the wall and the other side, I mean, in the dock itself, it's actually pretty clear. So, okay. so I would imagine then it's considerably warmer as well. So obviously that's what's attracting the jelly. Trust me, it ain't warm. Don't get it twisted. It ain't warm. <laughs> <laughs> but um but there's some hardcore northerns up there who were swimming without wetsuits i was like no thanks no, I'm, not, I'm not i'm not from this climate and so i was like i'm in my wetsuit were and, there uh, people when you competed at triathlon who would do it just in their in their speedos then was was that like yeah. a mark of like well, hardcoreness you know, or in triathlon well, is it always with wetsuits well it depends because there's at the beginning of the season everyone has to have a wetsuit because there's a certain temperature at which it's mandatory to wear wetsuit Got you. and then you get to a certain point where they go between a certain amount of degrees it's up to you and okay. then i think over 22 degrees or something which is never more <laughs> to in the uk no wetsuits so they were always in wetsuits beginning of the season always wetsuits and then certain point through the season you'd see some people in fact i remember being up in liverpool doing a, a try somewhere on the wirral where I saw too many people who were just in their, their swimming costumes, it was mixed, you know, swimming costume, or in their speedos. I was like, no, not in this world. Oof, no, thanks. Yeah. yeah, no, not at all. 
Yeah, so I, I, I really got to a point where I was like entering sportives and doing um, um, triathlons and just doing open water swims. Um, just because I, I, also when, when I was in Liverpool in, in Hollyoaks, you find, you know, you're kind of like, it's kind of, it's kind of like being on tour. You're, you're working in uh, different, I suppose, in the, when you're on tour, you're doing your, you've got your days to yourself and your mm. nights are um, in the theatre. But when you're doing a, a gig like that, Hollyoaks, where it's a city that's not your own, it's like, well, you're working in a day and then you've got evenings like, well, what am I going to do with myself? And unless mm. you're one of those people on tour who's just in the pub all night, it's like, mm. find something to do. So I quickly found myself like, and I was right by Sefton Park. And Sefton Park is kind oh, beautiful. of beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. It's the Regent's Park of, of Liverpool, I suppose. And by that, I mean that that's where all the cyclists do their training. So mm. everyone cycles around Sefton Park because there's no lights and you see them going around. And so I was right on its doorstep. So I would just go and do circuits there. They've also got soft ground so you can big circuit for running. So it was mm. easy to run on the, the sort of sandy shaley. So I found myself getting into a rhythm of um, just, again, solo sports yeah and i wasn't going about i wasn't about to and funny enough holly Oaks have a five-a-side team but i wasn't about to get in there oh with their flashbacks there when they, did they ask you was there sort oh, of oh they did they did and we used to go on these um tours you know we each year i think in the old days they used to go away loads um but while i was there we used to once a year go to southampton or plymouth or somewhere and again it was like an all expenses week away weekend away and you know you'd go to some nightclub and you know you'd sign loads of um flies and stuff and there'd be drinks and blah 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 which always appealed to me i was like and then the next day was the football i'm like i'm not playing the football no, like, you're not gonna play I said, no 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 i learned my lesson i'm an old man now I'm not <laughs> i'll come and watch so um so most of the time for me it was like i'm just going on a solitary little adventure and there were people in the crew actually who were big in cycling and so liverpool do a thing called the liverpool chester liverpool which is mm. a cycle from Liverpool city centre under the Birkenhead tunnel into mm. Woollyback country. Um, <laughs> so, Woollyback, uh, so just full, full clarity for the listeners, there is a, a, a blanket term in Liverpool that if you kind of go through the Birkenhead tunnel into either Birkenhead, Wallasey, North Wales, you're in Woollyback territory. I'm not entirely sure the etymology of where that phrase comes from. I don't know whether it's something to do with being a country bumpkin or someone who isn't a scouser. I don't know, but it's a, a catch-all kind of phrase for people who live outside of Liverpool city centre. Um, yeah. yeah, still to this day, don't really know where it comes from, having grown up there. But um, wow, so how how many miles was that then, Liverpool to to Chester? So Liverpool Chester, Liverpool is fifty miles, and that was the in fact that was the first time I'd done. A big distance for me um, mm. so I was like oh 50 miles but there were quite a few members of the crew who were doing it and serious cyclists and again I'm like yeah I'm holding my own because you know uh, the stamina it's all there and there's no no weight bearing on my knee um, and I loved it and I loved it and from then I started doing other sportives charity cycles 60 80 miles and um, and then eventually I did the ride London which is a hundred mile cycle Ride London. Now, so Ride London is kind of, well, it's, it's, it's kind of up there, really, in terms of the cycling sportive. So for, so for people listening, it's a, it's a kind of a two-day thing, isn't it? It's a two-day affair where you have the, 
a kind of a takeover of the of central London where all of the areas that are normally overrun with with traffic are kind of closed down and opened up for the general public to bring their bikes in and to explore and alongside that they have this sportif that people can enter it's a, like a lottery isn't it it's, it's akin to the London Marathon yeah, you, yeah, it's it like is, a lottery yeah, there's like a ballot yeah, for it and yeah. it's this a hundred mile sort of tour of London and the outskirts of London right out into um, the further stretches of London Hills, yeah. um, and it's quite an epic race and you I believe you did it on a day where the weather was particularly disgusting which oh, is always the way with these events yeah absolutely and, and um, ridiculously it had been a really hot summer and I think my that weekend it completely changed and I think I set off at 7am and by 7.20, I was soaked to the skin because mm. the rain just kept coming. And it, was, and, it, and, it, and it wasn't even mad heavy all the time. But you know, you, you cycle, you know when um, you're out on your bike. It only takes about five or ten minutes before you, you get caught and you're, you know, you're really starting to feel it through, your, through your, your layers. But this was six hours of just like continuous rain. And then it gets to a point where you go, well, I'm just wet now. I can't actually get any wetter. And my body in general is warm because you're cycling so you you're you're hot anyway and so i might as well just keep going mm. and i got to and it's beautiful being on the london roads when the dual carriageways all the side roads everything is just empty closed to to cars and it's it was brilliant just being mm. in the middle of the road cycling um along the embankment um and then through to um hammersmith out through Richmond, Kingston, and then eventually you get to the notorious Box Hill, oh, yes. which is a, a huge stretch of road that winds up and up. And, you know, all those, um, those amazing car adverts they film in Italy where the, the cars are going round and round these beautiful hairpin bends. Well, that's kind of like Box Hill, just going up and up and up and up and up. How long do you climb that for? How, well, I, I imagine it felt like a lot longer than it actually was, but how long are you, are you climbing Box Hill for? Well, it took me about ten minutes for me to. Be yeah, <laughs> I actually, I actually went down to the bottom and did it, did it again. Actually, just, uh, just to keep the legs fresh. Uh, uh, yeah, no, honestly, I'm not even sure. It, it, it felt like forever, but mm. the reality is because my my bike, my then bike, was a fast hybrid. It had, it has got three cogs at the front. The granny, mm. granny, the granny wheel, as the the professionals call it, which means basically, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I felt guilty for about the first two minutes and then I was like, I'm glad I've got this granny wheel. Yeah. <laughs> and even with the granny cog, which makes it really easy to go up hills, I had to get up out of my seat. And you get up out of your seat. And again, it's that thing about being an individual pursuit. You're fighting yourself. At points I was like, I need to stop. But all I kept saying was, all you have to do is turn the pedal. Even all you're doing is turning it half more turn, turn it half mm. more turn out of the seat, and it feels like I'm going nowhere. But I just keep saying to myself, just keep pedaling, just keep pedaling. Don't look how far you've got to go, just keep pedaling. And you can't look how far you've got to go. But lit, yeah. where does that come then? Where does Box Hill come in terms of the 100 miles? Is it that the halfway point? It's a bit further than halfway, I think. It's right. A bit further than half but also, there's another hill there, and I can't remember its name, and I'm sure some of your listeners will know instantly but there's another hill there that for me felt worse than box hill a i wasn't expecting it so box hill is so famous so i was thinking well we get out there and we go box hill then there's another hill i think it's before i was thinking 
is this this box hill? no this isn't box hill because everyone had said the signpost for box hill everyone knows about it. i was thinking well when does this stop when does this one stop and that <laughs> felt really hard and that was kind of straight it wasn't kind of windy windy so you could see up ahead of you people literally almost at a standstill and there are people who have stopped and they're just pushing their bike and in my head i kept saying to myself if i stop and push i will never get back on so what i kept doing was just going 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 just turn the crank turn the crank and i got to i remember getting to the top of box hill and talking to this bloke um so i'm doing it on my own and you just kind of you know some camaraderie some lycra camaraderie mm. that you get and this bloke was going i was up here with my dad last weekend and we were fighting the heat so hot and here we are in virtual torrential rain now by the time we got to box hill and then i think coming back into london at 85 90 miles i got mad cramp in one of my thighs and i just thought i'm gonna have to stop but again in my head if i stop i don't get back on and how can you do 90 miles and not do 100 that's ridiculous you know you're having this <laughs> don't be stupid what 90 miles and you've done you're gonna stop <laughs> numpty so um i literally just started carried on pedaling rubbing my thigh with my fist rubbing my thigh with my fist until and extending my leg as full as i could just kept going and eventually i shook it off and then as i shook it off it came onto the right side and i was like <laughs> And then at some point, I think in Putney or just Wimbledon Common before going down into Putney, it went. And I just thought, I'm in the home straight. I've got about five or six miles to go. Um, and it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful then. And then cycling all the way through the King's Road. I remember you come down the King's Road and I can't remember the route after that. And then basically coming down the mile, knowing mm -hmm. that you just cycled 100 miles was just like, yeah, it was heaven. It was heaven. And, and yeah, I remember going home and getting into as cold as an ice cold bath I could, because I didn't have much ice, but it was just like cold, proper cold water. And I just, you know, mind over matter, get in, because this is what you need, get in. I got in that cold bath, I sat in, sat in there um, for maybe 10, 15 minutes, got out, did all the stretching, all the rollering, and actually no ill effects really after that. Really? Uh, so yeah, you didn't no. feel so your legs weren't shot for like the next couple of days afterwards? No, no they weren't. And I think, I think it's that thing that you, you've got to and having never cycled anywhere near that length i was just like my body i said um i remember after 25 miles the first pit stop and i got off my bike wet at 25 miles and it's almost like my body gone oh well done mate that was great we had really nice fun can we go home now and i was like no 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 we, we, we haven't stopped yet that's just a little pit stop my legs literally seized up and i remember standing under this tree trying to shelter from the <laughs> trying Lord. to shelter my soaking body from the rain and um um, my legs just seizing up my thighs and thinking I've got to get back on this bike I've got to get back on this bike and I was holding like a, a, nutri a nutrient bar and eating that and trying to take my gels just thinking oh my, God, my body doesn't want to go on but then of course once you get back on your body says to you oh well, are we really doing this again are we <laughs> oh but I thought that was oh okay alright then mate and so it, it just lets you do it doesn't it it, it is amazing it is amazing and also what is amazing and i feel like there should be a tv show based purely on the voices your internal dialogues <laughs> yeah. for for what goes on in your head during during an endurance event and it's it's it is it's a full spectrum of everything and i love the idea of the body being this sort of like a slight simpleton of being like oh okay we finished now oh okay great yeah yeah yeah. I'll, i'm gonna cramp up your legs now oh oh we're going oh okay like but it, it, it's amazing isn't it that that whole dialogue that you have with yourself and your body when you go through an event like that and then 
afterwards was were you were the endorphins high were you were you buzzing were you, did you have yeah. like insane amounts of energy yeah mad mad high and actually what's funny is then i had to cycle home after that did um, you <laughs> yeah, I, home and I was thinking i'm gonna cycle home when i get but then you literally come off and i'm sure it's the same oh, with, with marathon runners where you go through the tape and there's people handing you your medals you know and you're in droves handing your medals and straight away i was just like fucking just ridden 100 miles i've just ridden. and then you calm down and you're looking across i didn't know anyone there there was no one to greet me and i'm just looking and smiling in people's faces then i see people lifting their bikes and taking photographs because it you'd write at buckingham palace and i remember asking someone to take a picture of me with my bike aloft oh. and um and then cycling i was thinking all oh, right well uh, i'm just gonna cycle up um, park lane and go home then being a funny little come down um just cycling normally on the road all of a sudden, normally with normal cars, with traffic and, and uh, pedestrians, and oh god! <laughs> and of course, you, yeah, it was so bizarre. And then getting back, and also no one going, "Oh my god, how amazing was it?" I'm like, yeah. Oh, just, uh, yeah, just cycled a hundred miles. Yeah. hundred miles, yeah. <laughs> just did one of the most iconic cycling sportifs in London. Yeah, yeah, no big deal, no big deal. But, but you then, did, then, but you did it though, and you'd known that you'd done it, and like that yeah. feeling is, is irreplaceable i think isn't uh, it when you achieve really, something like that i remember it was a couple of years later that i um, i did london to paris for a very iconic uh, birthday uh, 21. 21 yeah 21 yeah 21 yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, plus and um <laughs> i was with a mate of mine a mate of mine and coincidentally he'd actually started working on Hollyoaks, um and they wouldn't give him the time off to do it and so i ended up and again as i've said to you i'm quite happy doing sport on my own and there's something about cycling as well, actually, is that, and I'm sure it's the same when you're, it is the same when you're running. You find your own rhythm and cadence, don't you? Yeah. So if you're then running with someone who's a bit faster, it puts you out of your rhythm. Yeah. If you're going with someone who's slower, that can even be really hard. Yeah. Riding with someone who's too slow, it's kind of can zap your energy as well. Yeah, so 100%. I was, uh, it was a group of about, I mean, it was a well-organized event and there were maybe 50 or 60 people. So it was a well-organized event. You had your luggage was sent on ahead. And it was four days cycled to Paris, and honestly. So how many miles is that then? I think it's about. I think it's. I think it's about four hundred, four fifty, something like that. Oh no, no, it can't be four fifty. It's four days, so it's probably just about four hundred miles, or maybe slightly less. I'm sure one of your listeners will tell you exactly what I did. So but what about hundred miles a day then, split over four first, days? The first day was yeah, yeah. So the first day <laughs> was the hundred miles to Dover, and and I got lost a bit en route because I, I borrowed my mate's Garmin mm-hmm. and I'd never used a Garmin before. Um, and so I was following this Garmin and then it sent me a wrong way and it sent me down a massive hill, which was about a mile and a half. I was thinking, oh, this is beautiful. And then it started going, oh, wrong way, wrong way. I was like, well, I don't understand. Oh, no. and I literally had to do a thing where I was like, okay, well, just sort of, Boy Scout in me was kind of like, well, you, you kind of know where the sun sets and that must be the, uh, the uh, channel that way. So Dover must be there. So I took some 15 mile detour and eventually found my way there and got to the pub where we were all to meet. Honestly, that first pint, and it's the last thing that you'd think you'd want, but honestly, that first pint of ale in that pub was the most glorious alcoholic beverage I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got on the ferry. And then the other side, where we, the first night we stayed, um, we had to cycle another seven or eight miles, which 
if you do on a daily basis in London, you think, oh God, it's seven miles. That's a pain in the ass, isn't it? But actually it's like, just done 115 miles, mate. Seven miles, nothing. Piece of cake. And, and, and also the other thing was that um, you book, and of course you're booking as a solo and it says, oh, you may have to share a room. I got to my room, there's this double bed in there. I'm thinking, oh, fantastic, I'm on my own. Knock, knock on the door. I've spread out, knock, knock on the door. Some big bloke turns over the door. He's going, I think we're sharing a room. I was like, okay, <laughs> mate. Okay. <laughs> Me and this guy I've never seen. Oh, I no. This double bed. <laughs> Tour de France, this is nuts. Oh, for goodness no. sake. And I've literally, and I'm literally, um, and sorry to your listeners, but after 120 odd miles, I just said to him, I said, well, there's, um, we, we, you know, we're, you know, we, we're best mates now because I'm sorry, mate, I've got to go and have a shit. So I, <laughs> he was like, he was like, don't mind me, boy. That's my well. And that's a good word. He said, don't mind me. And I was like, I went in and I let the whole of my insides out. And then literally, um, we went to bed in this double bed together. <laughs> and we're still married now. Um, uh, it was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. But the, but the funniest thing was the next morning was going to be the hottest. It was a mad hot summer here and all over Europe. And the, the next day was going to be the hottest day on record. It was mm. 43 degrees. And we were going to be cycling 80 odd miles. And so they said, you know, you can start off when you want, but they say, oh, you know, you start by sort of half seven, eight o'clock. But they said to us, you've got to start by six, 6.30 at the, yeah. at the latest. And so getting up and getting on your bike. And, and what I did, again, it's that preparation thing. Because they were carrying your luggage, you know those foam rollers, the knobbly foam rollers? Yeah. I knew that. I've got to take one of those in my luggage. So although I was sharing this room with this random stranger, I was there with my pants on, just doing my rolling, rolling my thighs, rolling my calves, rolling everything, because I just thought, my body's going to, if I don't do any of that, and also I had a mad cold, and they had the funny little um, European bath, which is a little tray over a shower. I sat down in there, filled it up with as much um, cold water as I could, and I just thought, right, I've got to be prepared. In the morning, my body's going to go, oh, that was nice yesterday, wasn't it? What were you, what were you doing today? You watch some Netflix? And I got up, and my body went, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. I just thought, Oh, he's ready to go. And I got up at about five. I was on the road by 5.36. And the heat was just immense. Is that the first um, time you ever cycled in that kind of heat? Absolutely. 43 degrees it got to. Jesus. Fact, I think by 10 o'clock we were eating lunch because they had, you know, organized stops and high carbs, high protein, mm. you know, all sorts of... I, I no word of a lie. I had two water bottles, and by the time I was about um, an hour from the finish that day, it was like drinking tea. The, the juice in my bottles was like so hot, it was mental. They put on a coach that day, and they hadn't come with a big coach. They'd obviously hired like a big, you know, sort of National Express equivalent in France for people that weren't going to make it, and they did scoop up some people. But again, I just sort of went, "No, nah, you're not having me. You're not having me like that." A, mm. I paid more money. And B, I'm not going out like that. <laughs> right, so out. you cycled through, so you were going through the midday sun then. What time did you stop the cycle then? That day, I think it was about two. Was it about Oof. two o'clock? Yeah. Ooh, I remember going up this one hill that was, I could see right to the top and it was, I mean, beautiful countryside. We went through all the, um, and I've never really been to France. I've never traveled anywhere in France. I've been a couple of places, but going through that, um, the, battle, uh, the battlefields and I have terrible knowledge of history, but you know, all those. Um, oh, in the First World War. First World War, those graves, graveyards and that beautiful countryside. 
and just me. And of course, at times you'll start, you know, various times, but then sometimes you'll pass someone on the road. Sometimes you'll have a, a peloton of riders that will come past you because they're all together. And I was basically on my own most of the day. And it was well signposted. And so you knew where I was going. But um, it was kind of really, again, it was that kind of thing where you're just like in the zone. And mm. at times I'm thinking, well, I'm not racing anyone. And also don't kill yourself. I kept telling myself, <laughs> I really was like, oh, Katrina and Umi will kill you if you kill yourself. You know, <laughs> if you end up dying on this because you've decided to do this stupid thing for your big birthday, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna kill you for killing yourself. And so I still put my head down, but I was like, no, when I need to, I didn't stop. I only stopped at the, the you know, the um, particular breaks that were supposed to stop mm. that. We're not supposed to stop that, but like they were there. Some people, mm. I mean, hardcore people didn't even stop, but some of them. But I was like, stop, get some protein on board, get the, the, the nutrient bars down, get all the gels on. But um, I saw this hill and it literally felt like I was cycling backwards. And it wasn't like, mm. it, wasn't, it, it, was, it felt much harder than Box Hill because it was just a slow, slow, slight incline. And it just, I was pedaling and I was pedaling and it felt like I was going nowhere. It didn't feel like the, the, the top of it was getting any closer and the sun was just baking down on me. And I think that was the one time, only on that stretch where I just thought, what are you doing? What are you doing? What's wrong with you? That was what the voice was telling you then. And the great thing was I got to the top of that and only about a mile further on was the lunch stop. And it couldn't have come um, any sooner. It was just... In those in those endurance events, like I, I love this idea of your this internal monologue that you have. Like, what is the what is the split in your brain when you're doing those kind of endurance events? Um, wh- what's the split in terms of look at all this amazing scenery? This is a once in a lifetime thing. I'm seeing things I've never seen before. I'm doing things I've never done before. Versus the other side of your brain that's going, this is agony. It's 42 degrees. I've sweated out every bit of liquid i thought i could possibly hold in my body and like does is does does one dominate the other or does it does it reverberate between the two when you're doing something like that it reverberates between the two but the overriding one is even the one that is telling me i'm crazy it's it's like a cynical voice it's not like a devil voice right it's like, it's like going in you twat what are you doing this for right i see i see you, 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 you really that stupid as opposed to stop you better stop now it's really yeah. hurting it's really hurting so it doesn't, it doesn't, and then I listen to that voice for a bit, but then I'm, it's almost like we're having a little laugh together about how stupid I am to be doing this. And then, and then I, then I allow my, my other part of my voice to take over and go sing some songs because you know that singing actually um, passes the time. So I'd be singing random stuff. I don't even know. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Just singing under my breath. I don't, even, I don't even know, but some random songs I'd be singing. And then there'd be other times, I remember going across one, coming out of one wooded area and coming onto this flat, and there was beautiful wheat growing really high, and then huge um, wind farm. Mm. I remember there was something, because, you know, people often say that they think they're gross, grotesque, and a, you know, a, a scourge on a landscape, but I actually find them really beautiful, actually. I do as well, uh, yeah. Chopping up the landscape, and I remember thinking, I've never been so close to one of these because they're always in the distance of the motorway you know you're driving mm. through but I was like oh my god it's absolutely idyllic and so I let my I actually purposefully let my mind wander to that for a bit and just enjoying the fact that I'm going past these huge wheat fields and then and then also there were times when you pass 
some of the graveyards that are to the fallen soldiers of different of different nations. Right. You go, and I, I did stop at a couple, and you do go, wow, <laughs> what you're doing is nothing, you know. Yeah. And that's that again. That sounds a bit wanky and melodramatic, but it does. You go, what you're doing is nothing. Just, yeah. I'm getting a bit wild here now, but you know. No, just, no, I find it. I know it's fascinating, and it is fascinating where your mind goes to because your mind has to go somewhere in order to get through something that intense you have to yeah. find ways to occupy your mind distract your mind or engage it and sometimes you you will wonder like the, so many of the long runs that i've done in preparations for marathons or in marathons yeah. themselves your mind trips into sort of all kinds of weird and and wonderful places and strange places as well that the 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 most peculiar thoughts can filter through. And I, I think that, I think it's always fascinating to hear the kind of things that trickle through into people's minds when they do these kind of things. So this was, so that was day two. So then what was yeah. it like for days three and four? What was it like finally getting over to Paris? Oh, honestly, the endorphin the rush. Endorphins, yeah. Oh my God, that, that last, I mean, so we had two more days and, and again, what I, what I, forget and my geography is pretty good is i in my head i think paris is in the middle of france but it's nowhere near it's actually <laughs> closer to london than the middle of um france and actually although i'd cycled 200 miles in france i'd actually been nowhere france is an absolutely massive country and but beautiful some of those villages i actually remember thinking because of course you know at this point um i'm thinking well maybe i just moved to france and you know you're only you're, only a fl- you're doing self-tapes all the time, so you don't even have to be in London. Just move to France. I'm passing these villages that have kind of got these chateaux and these beautiful houses cost two bob and a toffee apple. And you're thinking, well, just come and live here. <laughs> of course, there's some, something idyllic in that idea when you're whizzing past. I, I use whizzing very um, sparingly. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 there's beautiful, beautiful old cobbled squares, you know, that you you kind of see on Mission Impossible, you know those ideas of those pra- squares in Prague and a lot mm. of those villages of, um, of of Europe, and I, I just think, oh my God! And this is a fraction, a tiny fraction of France. And it's mm. absolutely glorious. But that last day, so the last day coming into Paris, we started off, and it was really raining heavy, and it was mm. the day after my birthday. So I had my birthday, and I must have t- I told like one person, of course. Then before you know it, everyone knows. And so right. it was really lovely. The evening of my birthday, everyone was singing. It was like 60, 50, 60 people I didn't know. Um, <laughs> and you're a Welsh mate from <laughs> mid the first night as well, who you were now best buds with. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, actually, the second night, I had a bed to myself. I was like, oh, my God. My God. <laughs> but, um, but then, um, so that final morning got up and it was rainy and dreary. And most of the cycle to Paris was rainy and dreary. And then way in the distance, you could see the Eiffel Tower. And if I'm sure a lot of people know, Paris is no way near as um, built up as London is. Mm. You know, I've been to, uh, is it Notre Dame? No, not Notre Dame, what's it? The um, Sacre-Cœur, which is kind of on the hill in Mm. Paris. And you can see over Paris, it's like, oh my God, the tallest structure by far is the Eiffel Tower. And it's all quite low level. So miles out of Paris, you can see the Eiffel Tower, you can see Paris in the distance, like, oh my God. And And then you drive, you ride, through the ghettos of the outskirts of Paris. Now, one of my favorite films still is La Haine, right? Oh, great film. Which is just wonderful. And, so, and you know, without getting too political about it, I remember 
there's more people you're 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 with a lot more people at this point and so people are from all walks of life and people are oh you're from london oh gosh you'll never go to london you know the kind of people from surrey and they're cycling on the weekends and stuff and so i'm cycling with some of the people and we're going through these because bear in mind i've been through countryside of france barely seen uh, a person of color of any other color and then right. you come and you're riding into paris and you're on the outskirts you still got you know some way to go and you're in these neighborhoods that are all either um north african moroccans algerians or west africans from you know um and and i shouldn't say ghettos but that's the, the stereotype but these neighborhoods i remember riding at this point now riding with a few people like oh gosh it's a bit, it's a bit scary here it's like no it's not it's just like just like being in London all of a sudden, mm. you're, kind of like, you're just running on the road and no one gives a shit that you're there. They're just going about their business, but people mm. go, oh, yes, oh, oh, I can't wait to get, oh, can't wait to get to the end of this. Oh, <laughs> the pace sort of started to quicken <laughs> a little bit. It's like, oh, I've got a bit more energy all of a sudden. Oh, oh I've and, got a bit more pep in my legs. <laughs> and this is the last day. And of course, I'm head to toe in my Mo, Mo, uh, Knights of Mo Bay. I've got my hat and I've got my, my bib shorts. So I'm all in red, gold and green and black. So I've got my colours and I'm like, yeah, I feel like I'm in the place <laughs> I thought this is how I want to ride into Paris and then and then then they we all arrive at a certain marker point and then we're all going to ride to the because the end is the Eiffel Tower we're all going to ride into the Eiffel Tower together and so we do this kind of peloton of 60 riders and we get to oh the Arc de Triomphe so the roundabout of the Arc de Triomphe is like 10 times worse than again I'm a London cyclist you're a London cyclist I know how to ride in London right so these all these people who are um country cyclists oh my god oh my god what are we gonna do and i'm and i'm shitting myself as well but i'm like i just know you, you've got to be offensive as a be, uh, aggressive yeah aggressive uh, without being you know abusive you'll be aggressive as a london cyclist and i'm like we get onto the art street and i know i'm on one of my phones i have i had my phone out to video myself going around me and i'm literally going <laughs> and literally the, the the guy said to us when you hit the roundabout you keep going People don't wait for people to come on or get off. And people are in the wrong lane to come. So you just got to have your wits about you. And I'm just like flying, <laughs> screaming with my hat, my phone in my hand, one hand on my bike. <laughs> oh my oh, gosh. And then- I love the fact that you was, you'd successfully managed to not kill yourself in 42 degree <laughs> heat, like two days previous, yet you'd gone over the roundabout around the Arc de Triomphe with your phone. <laughs> And it's funny, I wasn't even thinking about death then. I was just thinking, oh, God, I hope I don't smash my phone. Yeah, was, <laughs> God, I bet it's going to look amazing on Instagram. It's going to look great. And, 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 the, and that particular race, well, race, that particular um, event is um, you land in Paris on the day before the climax of the Tour de France. Oh, so wow. you're riding the street that they finished the Tour de France on. So oh, you're really? riding... And then you end at the Eiffel Tower. So it was just like, so the next day we, unfortunately, the way it was booked was that we didn't get to see the end of the Tour de France by a, a couple of hours because we had to then get the, um, the Eurostar back. But if I'd, if I'd have realised that, I would have stayed an extra day just to see the thing. But yeah, so, I mean, it was amazing. It was a great way to spend my 20, do you want to say 18th birthday? I, I think it was your 16th, sweet 16th, <laughs> I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, it's amazing you got permission from from your you know your 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 parents, parents yeah. to to let you go and do that. Um, so that's what four hundred odd miles. Yeah. 
rather than doing 100 miles what what's next what's next well um i did the swim london mm-hmm. which is uh that there's the, this in fact they have an event called the london classic so mm-hmm. the london classic is swim london ride london and the london marathon so if you've done all three you become a london classic eventer and you get a special medal for that now the swim London is you swim the serpentine. So there's a half mile, a mile or a two mile course in the serpentine. Mm-hmm. So I did that. But the reality is I think I'm, I'm too late for marathon running with my knee. And I just feel that I've kind of, I don't know if it's me letting myself off the hook, but I, in my head, I'm like, yeah, my marathon days are over. I feel like maybe maybe you need to tap into that slightly sarcastic voice in your head and sort of maybe get, <laughs> get, get him to goad you into sort of, but yeah. I mean, you know, I think it is, and I think it all comes down to, I mean, don't quote me on this, but it all comes down to this thing that you've talked a lot about today. And it's that voice in your head, I think, and making, making an agreement with that voice mm-hmm. to say that, you know, no, I'm, I'm not going to let you sort of turn me off this path. I think I will continue and see whether I can, find a way obviously sensibly and not you know doing any damage to yourself but finding a way to to make it work for you again i feel like maybe you could maybe um, you know i'd love to come back a year later and have another podcast with you carl and find that you have done a a marathon or a half marathon or or a 10k or maybe you start like that maybe you start with a 5k 10k and work up from there well i i on a on a daily basis and i mean this in a a big-headed way I've got a 5k in me, whether I've run for years or, 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 or not for months. Um, because I think just my history of having sport is like, Oh, I've got the engine for it, but I just, you know, you get to a certain point, you just think starts bits of your body start to let you down. And in a way that is, um, not in your control. But again, I think that's me letting myself off. Carl that the AG is now, still believes that he's 18 and he should just be able to wake up in the morning and play whatever sport or do or run as far as he wants. But I actually, I mean, I do feel a bit inspired now because I have in the past, I was intending to, I entered and, and got accepted to the 2000 marathon, London marathon, but then I couldn't because of my cruciate um, uh, reconstruction. But I think, and over the years I have had the opportunity to run half marathons and I've sort of gone, no, 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 I can't anymore. That's not in my, um, not in my um, armor. But I do kind of feel inspired now. Okay. Uh, I know that I know that sounds ridiculous, but I do. I do feel inspired to actually go. You know what? You and hearing to hearing myself speak about it in the mm. way I see sport and when I see individual sports, like, oh, what are you talking about? Of course you can do this. Of course you can do this. Yeah. So I maybe do need to push towards going right. You need to rehabilitate to that level where you i mean i think pilates is about to become a big part of my life because um the core <laughs> there's some laughter in the background there um <laughs> the core, core is key isn't it the core is key absolutely no yeah. absolutely and uh, you know many 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 elite athlete from all fields of of endurance athletes and even motorsport athletes will all swear by using pilates as a way for for building up incredible core strength and maybe that will be your your gateway drug back into the world of um of endurance running so so are we gonna are we gonna put it on on record that you're gonna you're gonna try what about if i uh what if i promised to do i've done a half by next time next year okay 
Okay, we've got it. We've got it recorded. And we do have it recorded this time because I pressed record this time. We have it in the podcast world. It is being committed to, to recording that Carl is going to try and see if he can get himself back in shape to do a half marathon. Back in shape. You already are in shape. I mean, the guy's cycling 400 miles to Paris and he's only 16 years old. I mean, come on. Um, Carl, thank you so much for coming on The Big Run and for telling us all about your sporting exploits and just for being a, an amazing guest. Thank you so much. Bless you, mate. It's been fantastic. Keep running. Big thank you to Carl for coming on and for committing on a podcast to doing a half marathon in a year's time. So 365 days and counting from when this podcast is published. I'm going to give you from then. So hopefully we can get Carl on this time next year to see how he got on. And I'm still thinking about those cynical voices or the various different sounding voices that were going through Carl's head. And I can imagine all of us as, as runners or as cyclists or as people who just enjoy physical activity have all had those voices in our head at some point. I'm just quite interested to see what yours sounds like. Is it the cynical one like Carl? Does it have an accent? Um, let us know. Jump on uh, the Big Run Pod on Twitter or the Big Run Podcast on Instagram and share with us some of your stories about the things that have gone through your head during marathons or triathlons or ultras or whatever it is and if you want to keep an eye on my mileage which is probably a little bit lower at the moment because I'm currently recovering from an injury but if you want to follow my recovery program and the various strength training I'm doing to get around it you can if you check me out on Instagram at Danny Runs Some, where I'll be sharing my training and recovery process and hoping to be getting back running as soon as humanly possible next week on the big run it's you know it could be as simple as sort of more body weight capacity type things quite often it's, it's very helpful particularly with achilles tendon problems to apply much heavier external loads so it might be that you maybe get into the gym at least once twice a week just to just to work through a set of heavier weighted calf loads which you know might involve a smith machine or a leg press to do that oh talking of injuries more insight to injuries all kinds of recoveries, niggles and things that we as runners deal with with our next guest next week and that is a really fascinating and really interesting insight into that side of things so join us next week until then if you're able to get out there and get running <laughs>